Welcome to Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. I'm your host, Melissa Brunetti. In this second season of Mind Your Own Karma, we're tackling the subject of adoption. Yes, adoption most of the time is a wonderful experience. You have the generous birth parents, the excited adoptive parents, and this lucky little baby. Everyone lives happily ever after, right? But what I want you to know is, there's so much more to these stories. I'm an adoptee myself, and I want to bring all sides of the adoption journey to you in hopes to educate you and to bring understanding to the subject. We're about to get real and raw here, so let's dive right in. Hey there, Karma Crew. It's Melissa Brunetti, the host of Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. I hope this podcast this week is finding you well, and I am sensing a little change in the weather. Even though it's still July and summer, I don't know. I've got this energy that's just kind of going through me, and I'm ready to like clean house and get my feng shui going, (laughs) even though... I don't know what feng shui is, but I'm working on it. I'm learning some things here and there, and I think it's kind of cool. Anyway, I don't know if you feel the change, but I do. And it feels really good because some things have been pretty stagnant and not all that great lately, to be honest. So I've been waiting for the change and I feel like it's happening and some things are already turning around. And so I'm kind of excited about fall, which I usually really hate fall but I'm kind of looking forward to it this time. I'm also excited because I have a lot of interviews I'm lining up for you guys. And so those will be coming at you soon. Today is a solo episode. I kind of want to go into the why I wanted to find my biological family, all the reasons why. And my reasons aren't unlike a lot of adoptees. We all seem to have similar reasons why. And so this should relate to everybody. And I hope that you kind of get some understanding through my story as to why adoptees feel the need to search for their biological families, even if their adoptive families have been the greatest family they could ever hope for. The need is still there. So for a lot of us, I can't say for everybody. And, you know, I do want to say that because I'm kind of generalizing a lot of, you know, adoptees. And of course, not all adoptees have all the things that I've been discussing. So like I always say at the end, take what you need and leave what you don't. You don't have to fit in the box that I'm explaining. Everybody's different. I don't even have all the things that I'm talking about or have experienced all the things that I'm talking about. So I'm going to go into my story a little bit. So when I was about 23, I had been married for a couple of years and had decided to start a family. So at that point, I had kind of wondered, obviously, about my biological history at that point And I had come across some paperwork that in 1986, so when I was 18 years old, the adoption agency had come and uh, talked to my parents or they had sent a letter through the mail to the house. And um, I didn't know about the letter when it came. And basically said that my biological mother was having some health issues and they were having problems kind of figuring out what that 
what the root cause of it was and that her mother had had kind of some similar things. It seemed like a neurological disorder for both of them. And they were wondering if maybe my medical history could help them figure out what was going on with her. And these are the things that adoptees think about, you know, what are we predisposed to? And we aren't privy to that information. We don't get that information unless the birth parent wants to notify you about that. And even then, if your adoptive parents don't want you to know, they don't have to tell you. Even though I was 18 at the time that this letter arrived at my house, it was addressed to my parents. And I was an adult. I was 18 years old. And I was still not given the opportunity to make my own decisions on that. I think it's just ridiculously ludicrous. And it really pisses me off. Here I am an adult and I still have no right to say what I want to do with that. Do I want to release my medical history? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened because I didn't really find out about any of that for a couple years, I think, at least a couple of years. And when I finally saw the letter, it kind of panicked me a little bit because I was like, well, whatever happened and is she still alive? And it was it something that I could maybe pass down? I, you know, it really kind of scared me a little bit. And then I just wondered, like, is she still alive? I had always thought about meeting her at some point, but then it just became very in my face at that point and kind of felt urgent that I needed to find out what happened after that. And did they figure out what was going on with her health-wise? So I have a letter from the social services, and it's a letter from my birth mother's doctor to them. And I'm going to censor out some of this for personal reasons. But um, it says, this is to certify that, and there was a name there, but they took a black pen and marked it out. So I couldn't see it is a 38 year old female who I have followed at regular intervals since July of 1985. So for a year, because of a history of loss of movement and pain involving the hip joints and legs, as well as discomfort of the shoulder, the patient has shown evidence for possible myopathy with chronic episodes of total body weakness and specifically muscle weakness throughout the course of assessment and evaluation. And then it goes into a whole myriad of extensive testing that she had done in July or since July of 1985, all kinds of things. The patient has evidence of possible neuromuscular disorder and definite evidence for a sleep disorder. 
Although no definite diagnosis has been made at this time, I find it significant that the patient's mother was reported to be suffering from a degenerative neurological disease diagnosed as multiple sclerosis. I feel it would be beneficial for this patient to secure old medical records regarding her mother's illness as well as any medical tests done to determine that the diagnosis was accurate. It's also my strong advice that her relinquished daughter be contacted to supply her with the information that both her mother and a maternal grandmother have an apparent neurological disorder that could have genetic implications for her as well as future generations. The patient may find that a medical history of her genetic daughter is not only revealing but very helpful in terms of her own diagnosis and treatment. Your kind consideration of this matter would be greatly appreciated by myself and the patient, I can assure you. So notice that the doctor says, it is my strong advice that her relinquished daughter be contacted to supply her with the information that both her mother and a maternal grandmother have an apparent neurological disorder that could have genetic implications for her as well as future generations. The doctor wanted me to know. And the agency just disregards that and does whatever it wants. And even though I was an adult, they did not give me the information. They gave it to my parents. Can someone explain that to me? Because it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all to me. So anyway, this letter was dated June 16th, 1986, and I was over, I was 18. I was 18. And then the second letter I have is a letter that my biological mother wrote to the social services agency on July 28th, 1986. So I don't know, about a month or so later. And it's about medical need for contact in case of, and it has her name there. And it says, enclosed, you will find a notarized waiver of confidentiality to authorize you to release identifying information about me to my birth daughter and or her adoptive parents. Also enclosed is a letter containing medical and some personal non-identifying information about me for Jennifer who is me. (laughs) Catherine Hellert, the social worker I had been contacting, said that it could be forwarded to her in the initial contact if it was non-identifying. I'm writing to you to refresh your memory about my situation, to restate some of the things we discussed during our telephone conversation of July 18th, and to perhaps supplement any case notes Catherine may have written. When I first contacted your agency in March of 1986, it was to find out if I could sign a waiver of confidentiality and to see if any inquiries had been made by Jennifer or her adoptive parents. I was also concerned about getting medical information to her that has genetic implications. Ms. Hallard advised me to get my neurologist to write her a letter, and upon receiving it, she would be able to contact the adoptive parents, and then they would need to forward the information on to Jennifer within 10 days. I hope you have the letter Dr. Knox sent to Ms. Hallert dated 6-1686 stating the advisability of contact. Ms. Hallert said she also did some quick checking and found the location of the adopted family as of two years ago. She said that it would be a fairly simple thing to contact them. 
Then she goes on a little bit about a um, Miss ha- the Miss Hallert that she's been talking about in the letter. It sounds like they were wanting to change who she was contacting at the agency, and she wasn't happy about that. So she goes on about that. And then she says, secondly, we seem so close to the end now, only to write that final letter and perhaps give some reassurance and identifying information if Jennifer or her parents request it. I don't feel it would involve that much more time to resolve this and close the case. If Catherine's still working for your agency, can management be swayed to grant this? Thirdly, I feel that the adoptive parents and Jennifer would feel better if their immediate questions could be answered by someone who has personally talked with the birth mother at some length. It would also give me peace of mind. Because of my health, my future is uncertain at this time. I feel it is important to move ahead on this as soon as possible and that Jennifer should have the opportunity to ask questions and get them answered if it is her desire, while I am still able to do so. Please contact me as soon as possible to tell me what actions will be taken. She gives her phone number and sincerely puts her name at the end. So it just sounds like she's doing everything she can to get this biological information to me. And the agency is just not being as cooperative as they could have been with the situation. And it just seems like they're dragging their feet, maybe in hopes that everyone will just give up and they won't have to do anything. I don't know. I don't, I don't know um, what the situation is, why they do what they do. I don't know. I just, I just really think that things need to change. As I've said before, it just needs to change. The laws need to change. It's not fair that she is wanting to get this information to me. I am an adult and they still did not get that information to me personally. I just, I, it just blows my mind. So anyway, I had no idea any of this was going on and um, didn't know for a few years. And then, like I said, when I found out, it became urgent for me to find her. So that became number one, just finding out what happened and if it had any implications that could affect me or my children. The second thing is, growing up, I just always wondered if I looked like anyone, it's just weird growing up, not looking like anybody and you see your friends and you see the resemblances and either their siblings or a family member. And I didn't have that. And so that was always kind of a thing for me. And then, um, in my adoptive family, I had a brother, but I never had any sisters. So that was kind of a thing too. Like I always wanted a sister. So I wondered if I had any. And so just wondering all those things, Where are they? Who are they? How many siblings do I have? Who do I look like? All those things were always on my mind growing up. Biological kids don't think of those things. They just look around and be like, oh, I look like my mom. And don't tell me I look like my mom because I don't want to hear that I look like my mom. (laughs) But I did. I wanted to hear that I looked like someone because then it would make me feel less like I appeared out of nowhere, that I actually came from someone, that the stork didn't drop me off in a basket, and here I was. It just, it would make it so much more real that I was a normal baby, born the normal way, and 
that all my thoughts and feelings and everything that I was thinking was normal for an adoptive child. But no one around me would talk about those things because they weren't adopted. They didn't think about all those things. And if they did, it's not like anyone was going to talk about it because that's not what you did in the 60s and 70s, you know, even in the 80s. You didn't talk about that stuff because then it would bring up that you weren't biological family and that's just weird and we don't want to talk about that. So, you know, I kept all these things to myself, which a lot of adoptees do, and it's just very isolating in a way. But that's just, I think most adoptees grew up that way in that time period, and that's just how everybody did it. And so everybody just kept doing it that way. Now we know not necessarily the best way to handle it, but if you don't know better, you can't do better. So I can't fault anybody for that. And I was fine. It wasn't horrible growing up with these thoughts. They were just things that I wondered, but it wasn't like they tormented me or anything, you know, so I was, it was fine. But I think nowadays we know better, so we need to start doing better. And if I can help do that, that's my mission. That is totally what I want to do is educate. So if I can help change that narrative any way I can, I'm going to try and do that. The third reason that I felt like I wanted to find my biological family was I needed to hear my why story. I really wanted to hear why I was put up for adoption, what the circumstances were, all the things I wanted to know, all of those things. And I wanted to hear, like I said, I wanted to hear my birth story. I didn't, I wanted to feel like I was actually born like a normal baby. So all those things were not going to come from anybody else, but my birth mother. And I really had a need to want to hear those things. And to be honest, even when she told me the stories, like I can't even remember the story, my birth story, even though I so, so, so wanted to hear the story. I couldn't recall any of the details, to be honest. I remember the only thing I do remember was that I was supposed to be born on St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March, and I wasn't born till the 22nd. And that's really the only thing that I remember her saying but I don't remember the story. I really don't. Um, so it's kind of odd that it was so important to me and I can't remember it. Maybe I just needed to hear it and that was good enough, you know, but I, it just never, it still doesn't resonate that I, that that was my story and that I was actually born. Well, even when I was listening to it, it just was strange. <laughs> it was just strange at 20, whatever years old that, um, I was hearing the story of my birth and it just didn't feel real. I was kind of disassociated from it. So I don't know what that's all about. It was just, it was just kind of surreal, I guess. And since I hadn't grown up hearing the story, it just didn't seem like that was my story. And I'll tell you one thing that I didn't think about that I realized later that was just so weird was having some of the same mannerisms, some of the same inflections when you talk, the way you laugh, 
And we would laugh, we would giggle because we would both realize we were both doing the same thing or we would laugh the same way. And so then we would just laugh more because it was just like so surreal and weird. But it was also kind of fun. It was fun to kind of finally see some resemblances in those manners. So it was kind of comforting to to experience that. So I kind of want to go back in time a few weeks. Um, I had told you guys that I had been having some questions about some things that were related to my adoption because of some ancestry results that came to me recently. And I had a friend reach out to me just out of the blue and ask me if I needed help with my genealogy tree, if I had any questions. And I was like, the weirdest thing that you're contacting me because as a matter of fact, I do. So I talked to her about those and she started working on my tree And I told her at the time, do not tell me anything that you find out because I want to put it on the podcast and I want you to reveal it to me in real time with my real reactions and things like that. So I'm hoping to bring that to you soon, kind of a reveal. I will reveal more at the time of that podcast as to the details of my questions and why I had questions. But that should be an interesting episode. Um, I kind of want to end. I found some letters that my biological father had written me. I know I have more, um, but I had just come across three just laying here. And I was just kind of like, oh, maybe this is a sign that I'm supposed to read a letter on the podcast. So I held them out in front of me and I picked the one that felt energetically the one that I was supposed to read. I have not pre-read this letter. Um, Let me see. It is dated May 19th of 1992. So 30 years ago. And my son wasn't even born yet. I was pregnant with him. So let's see what this says. Um, I was probably about six months pregnant at the time. So it's it's so funny because now I'm looking at the letter and he writes in cursive and I'm like, what guy writes in cursive? And it's pretty nice cursive too. <laughs> anyway, let's see if I can read this. Um, so Melissa, so good to hear from your pen again. Did you get my other letter? You have been in my thoughts and prayers and I just know you're going to be just fine. And he's referring to, I had a rough pregnancy and I was on bed rest You asked about pictures and maybe I can find a few. What do you want now? Pictures or baby teens, etc. I have some that I may be able to get copies of or doubles of some of them. My mother and father are off traveling the country again in their new truck and trailer. But before they left, mom gave me a scrapbook about our family. I would love to show it to you sometime after the baby is born. You guys really need to come over and see me. So I don't know if I, I think I waited till, yeah, well, I had to have waited till after I had my son to go see him. So I hadn't even seen him yet. We were just writing and having to mail things back and forth. We really didn't have any riots here, but I have to say, oh, because he was a police officer. So he's talking about the riots and he was in the Bay area. So 
I don't know if that was like a Rodney King at the time, I'm thinking. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about riots. But I have to say things were very tense for a couple of days. I didn't think in all the years I have worked in the field, I have been so afraid. People, citizens really reacted the very opposite of the way I expected. They were overly friendly and glad to see us. I had a number of people come up to me and tell me to be careful and ask how we were doing. Black and white. I think everyone was frightened. It was reassuring to see the police were still there to protect them. All in all, it was a very strange few days. I have been very busy. I am learning to dance country and Western. I've never been a very big fan of that type of music, but I love the dancing and the people are really great. I go Wednesday nights to a place called the Saddle Rack in San Jose. Hats, boots, belt buckle, the works. (laughs) What an escape from reality. Fun, fun, fun. Oh my gosh. He was, he thought he was such a Romeo Casanova. It's so funny. Anyway, I also got a second job working at a home and garden store. We work with a lot of landscape contractors, grass, rock, and all that stuff. It's all new to me, but fun to learn. So I'm a busy guy right now. I'm trying to heal a broken heart. And if I keep busy, it helps. Yes, even older people have this problem. My girlfriend just became too much of a pain and I had to say goodbye. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Loved her a lot, but couldn't take the problems. I'm sure you know what I mean. It does leave me more time to write letters, though. One good thing. Well, hun, I'll close for now. Stay well. Signs his name with a little happy face. So those were the kind of letters that I got from him. You know, very um, on the surface and not talking about past stuff. Just kind of like, what's going on now? How are you doing? You know, that he cared, but at the same time that he didn't want to look back. And, you know, I kind of did with him somewhat, but he never, ever talked about any of what happened back then. Never talked about my birth mother, what, you know, how things were with them or anything. So, um, very on the surface, but like I said, you know, he cared in his own way. And I only did meet him one time the one time in person. And it was, you know, it was nice. It was kind of awkward, I think, for both of us. Um, But it it was nice. And I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad I have these letters now. And I do have photos of him. He passed away, probably coming up on six years now, I think. So it's been a while. And so I'm glad that I found him alive and I was able to meet him. I hear so many stories of adoptees finally breaking through all the red tape and things to find out that their birth parent had passed away and that they missed the opportunity. And I just hear the pain and I see the pain that they are going through because of that. And I'm going to have somebody on the podcast soon that went through that. And it's just heartbreaking. It really, really is heartbreaking because you have that need and then you find out that they're gone and you're not going to have that opportunity. So for me, I'm grateful 
that he wanted to meet me in the first place. Because as I told you earlier, there was some question in his mind that I was even his child. So for him to be open to wanting to even meet me, I think was, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say generous of him, but I am grateful that he allowed me to do that. He also gave me information about my sisters. And so I was able to, over time, meet both of them. And we try and keep in touch the best we can. I have two half sisters from my biological father, two half brothers from my biological mother. So it's just nice to have that connection with the siblings, which is a lot easier. It seems, at least in my case, it was a lot easier to kind of form that bond with a sibling. And you can have a ton of siblings, but you normally only have one mom and dad. So that's kind of where, you know, things get a little bit sticky, but um, trying to navigate what, who they're going to be to you in your life and those kind of things. So to wrap things up, those are the reasons, my reasons to why I found my biological family. And it seems to kind of be universal throughout the adoptee community that these are the things that we think about. Most adoptees think about when they are having that need to find their biological family. They're all kind of similar. And there are some adoptees that didn't have a great adoptive family. And so that's another reason sometimes that I hear that adoptees are wanting to find their biological family. That can be a huge can of worms because you're so desperately wanting that connection with someone and you didn't get it with your adoptive family. So you go searching for your biological family. And I've heard so many heartbreaking stories of those reunions or, or non reunions in those situations, because the expectation is high that the need that they have to have that connection is so palpable. And when it doesn't happen, it can be very heartbreaking. So there you go. I'm approaching my 30 minute mark, which I try to stick to. And I hope you got some food for thought out of this podcast today. Again, if you are an adoptee looking for some support, there is a Facebook group Fireside Adoptees that you might be interested. So check them out. It's for adoptees only. So if you're not an adoptee, you cannot join the group. It is a safe place to air whatever it is that topics that you want to talk about, whatever things you're thinking about, struggling with. It's just kind of a support place for you if you are looking for something like that. They have Zoom meetings twice a week at this point, and you can participate, not participate. They'll have open mics. They'll have speakers. They'll have subjects that they're talking about. It just kind of changes. Um, they change it up. So they announce what they're going to talk about. You can join or not. And it's just a great place to not feel so alone in your thoughts about being an adoptee. So if you are looking for some support, there is that Facebook page. The link is in the show notes. If you are part of the adoption triad and would like to come on the podcast and talk about your story, you can email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. If you would like to follow me, I have Instagram and Facebook pages as well. So look for me there. I think I will post a picture of 
me and my biological father on the day, the one time that we met. I have a couple photos of us and I will post one of those pictures so that you can take a look at that if you're interested on my Facebook and Instagram pages. Last but not least, I have a question for you. The last few episodes, I have asked you to go on your listening platform and leave a review, rate, leave a comment for the podcast. And my question for you is, have you done that yet? Because if you haven't, I see you and you need to go do that. So I'm going to sign off so that you can go do that right now. (laughs) And I thank you in advance. No, seriously, it really, really helps the podcast. So if you are listening on a regular basis, if this episode touched you in some way, please, please, please go rate, review, It really helps get the word out about this podcast and please share it. If you think there is someone that needs to hear the podcast is an adoptee, share the podcast. And, um, I would really appreciate any of those gestures. And I'm going to give a shout out to one listener, yo canny. And she says, love season two direction, your passion and dedication to help adoptees and their adopters is to be commended. You come from a place of love and compassion and even understanding and acceptance for a flawed system. Job well done, important for everyone to listen and how we can be supportive. Thank you so much, Yokani, for that lovely five-star review. So it is time to sign off here. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. And we'll see you next time. Oh yeah, and don't forget to leave that review. Thank you so much for listening to Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. I've had listeners ask how they can help support this podcast. The best way to do that is rate and review this podcast directly on your listening platform. You have no idea how this small gesture helps get the word out about this podcast. Don't forget to click the subscribe tab to get notified of future episodes so you won't miss a thing. You can also find my Instagram and Facebook links below if you would like to follow and support me there as well. Lastly, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Adoption Chronicles season of the podcast, you can email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.